Pai Mahwan is a professor of law at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. He's a former UN war crimes prosecutor at The Hague, including uh, in various tribunals for the crimes in the for former Yugoslavia and in Rwanda. Uh, he's worked with the UN in Yugoslavia, Rwanda, Guatemala, and Cambodia, and is currently counsel at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. So without further ado, I'll pass it on to Dr. Professor Payanakhova. Um, thank you very much um, for that kind introduction, uh, Kian. And um, there is no relation whatsoever, as Kian explained, and the fact that he's standing over there, uh, two meters away from me in the same room is pure, pure coincidence. So <laughs> um, whenever um, uh, someone asks, and it was, it was Farzine's idea to, to have my son introduce me, so um, I was quite a bit nervous, but I'm glad it, it went well. So thank you very much. It's a great honor to be um, delivering this um, by now legendary fireside series. And uh, I'm really uh, grateful uh, that uh, I've been given this honor and, and opportunity to speak to the 224 of you who um, I understand are spread across uh, many different uh, places uh, on, in the world. And um, I thought that this would be a, a good opportunity to reflect on uh, what uh, significance the pandemic has for our place in history and uh, our um, uh, understanding uh, of our uh, place in this uh, greater universe. And to begin this conversation, I thought I would share with you a very famous poem by the Persian mystic born in the year 1210 in the city of Shiraz by the name of Saadi. And those of us who are of Iranian origin will know about Saadi. And he has a very famous poem, which in Persian begins with Bani Adam Azayyaktigaran. And the best English translation of this poem, which actually appears at the portal of the United Nations General Assembly in New York is as follows. Human beings are members of one whole, created in essence of one soul. Should one part be afflicted with pain, the other part uneasy will remain. You who have no sympathy for human pain, the name of human you cannot retain. And I begin with this poem because it captures the profound uh, mystical spiritual view of the oneness of humankind what saadi was telling us in the sufi tradition is that humankind is interdependent that the welfare of the part uh, uh, is connected with the welfare of the whole and beyond that he also tells us that to feel the pain of others to have empathy is what it means to be a human being. And conversely, that if we are indifferent to the suffering of others, then we are not worthy of calling ourselves human beings. Now, 1210 um, is a very long way from the world of today. But I would like to reflect on what happened during that period in medieval history, because I think it contains some very important lessons 
for what we are experiencing today. So five years after the birth of Saadi, in 1215, um, the Mongol warriors uh, invaded the Persian Empire. And it was the beginning of the end for what was known as the Golden Age of uh, Islamic civilization. And of course, this was a period uh, where of uh, massacres, of mass migration, as people fled the atrocities and the war. And by 1346, the Mongol warriors had besieged the uh, Christian city of Kufa in uh, the Crimea on the Black Sea. And it may sound very macabre, but I can tell you that this is not something I fabricated. This is a historical fact documented in various sources that in the siege of this city, um, one of the techniques, which is a primitive expression of biological warfare that the Mongols used, was to take um, uh, disease-ridden uh, uh, bodies and to catapult them over the walls of the city in order to spread disease uh, as a means of uh, breaking the siege. Now in 1347, ships arriving from the Black Sea to the Sicilian port of Messina brought with them the bubonic plague to Europe. Within a few short years after the arrival of the bubonic plague, which had probably taken many years to travel that far, um, and various historical accounts uh, believe that the bubonic plague came from Asia and it traveled westward, as one could imagine, uh, with caravans, with warriors, and, and what have you. But within a few short years of the uh, a, a pandemic, as it was, uh, the bubonic plague pandemic, which historians refer to as the Black Death, some 50 million people, or an estimated half of Europe's population, had died. Now, the uh, Europeans of the time, living in what we call the Dark Ages of superstition, fanaticism, religious dogmatism, where there was no science, where there was no technology, believed that the pandemic was divine retribution. And they all congregated in churches and uh, prayed to appease an angry God that was punishing them. So I mentioned this because the current pandemic is only a modest reminder of the catastrophic toll of viral pathogens in our collective history. But there are a number of lessons that can be learned in contrast to what happens in medieval Europe. Well, for one thing, in medieval times, it took several years for the bubonic plague to spread from Asia to the European continent. Whereas today, as we know, um, someone ate something in Wuhan, China, and within a matter of days, 
someone who had contracted this virus uh, got on an airplane, traveled halfway across the world, and the uh, uh, virus, um, with alarming uh, 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 exponential speed, spread and became a pandemic, a global uh, epidemic. Of course, in today's world, fortunately, we have science, we uh, don't merely think that this is a case of divine retribution, although perhaps it is, as I will reflect on it a bit later. Uh, but we have the basis for detecting uh, the virus and taking measures of self-isolation, social distancing, curtailing travel, uh, closing public spaces, and so on and so forth. And in a sense, we do all of those things because we have no choice. It's a matter of our collective survival to uh, uh, cooperate uh, and to have some measure of solidarity um, in order to achieve the, the greater good of humankind. But I think there is a deeper lesson when we understand in our arrogance, uh, because we do have a certain arrogance in the modern era, where through scientific and technological uh, advancement and through a philosophy uh, that puts us at the center of the universe, um, perhaps all of a sudden we're confronted with the fragility of human life. All of a sudden we realize that despite our extraordinary advances in science and technology and our, our unprecedented wealth and prosperity in this consumer culture of ours, where the whole world revolves around our needs for entertainment, for consumption, for distraction, and, and what have you, all of a sudden we realize that the smallest of microscopic particles can completely disrupt the world. And we have seen how since the pandemic, uh, the world has in a sense turned upside down. So there's something very humbling about encountering the fragility of human life. Because in our modern society, we have lost sight of how vulnerable, in fact, we are to the forces of nature. In medieval Europe, the same Europe that placed the Black Death in 1346, life expectancy was about 25 to 30 years of age. And life was nasty, brutish, and short, whether it was because of violence, disease, hunger, and what have you. Today, of course, we live in a very uh, scientifically advanced society, and I will trace some of the roots of our thinking uh, through the um, European uh, Enlightenment uh, and why it is that we are uh, now forced to rethink our place uh, in the universe. So all of a sudden we realize, first of all, that human life cannot be taken for granted. Uh, secondly, that we depend on each other for survival. It is in a sense, uh, an inescapable expression of interdependence. 
And we also realize, perhaps not as clearly, that our way of life, our destruction of natural habitats, the commingling of wild animals with human settlements, um, is at least one of the reasons why we have the prevalence of these new uh, viral infections. And we also, perhaps in the back of our minds, have to realize that the mortality rate of this pandemic is remarkably low. It is perhaps one or two percent, whereas the Ebola outbreak, which fortunately could not spread as quickly as COVID-19 can, had a mortality rate of some 80%. And who is to say that the next pandemic would not have a far more uh, catastrophic toll? So I want to reflect a bit about um, our way of life, our self-conception, our uh, understanding of our place in the universe, and what lessons we can derive from the pandemic. So getting back to the Europe of medieval times, the Europe of fanaticism and superstition, we fast forward to the Reformation in the 16th century, the Renaissance, uh, the beginning of the scientific revolution, which accelerated by the uh, 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 18th and 19th centuries. And we uh, perhaps can refer to what Max Weber, the German philosopher, said um, about modernity uh, as opposed to tradition, traditional society being one in which we look to the past in order to chart the future. Traditional society is merely a repetition of ancestral traditions in perpetuity into the future. Whereas modernity all of a sudden allowed humankind to use the powers of the intellect and scientific discovery in order to imagine a different future. So Max Weber famously said that the price of progress of intellectualization and scientific advancement was what he called disenchantment, disenchantment with a religious worldview. Because a religious worldview was associated with dogma, fanaticism, superstition, backwardness. So all of a sudden, instead of God being at the center of the universe, man becomes at the center of the universe. And through the faculty of the intellect, science, and technology, we all of a sudden became capable of liberating ourselves from the forces of nature. And by the time of the Industrial Revolution in the 18th and 19th centuries, all of a sudden we are further liberated from the drudgery of survival and subsistence farming to industrial production, mass migration to the cities, urbanization, the disruption of uh, feudal uh, social structures, and historians look at the Industrial Revolution as a turning point in human history. And as I will explain, what we have witnessed in the past 30 years in the Internet Revolution, I would argue, is a, a, a far more revolutionary change even than the Industrial Revolution. So 
in on May 22nd, 1844, Samuel Morse sent the first telegraph from the United States Capitol in Washington, D.C. to Baltimore train station. And his message, historic message was, what hath God wrought? Now, prior to the invention of the telegraph, it would have taken several hours to take a message from Washington to Baltimore, perhaps by horse and carriage, unless you had a, a DHL a carrier pigeon, perhaps. But in any event, the telegraph uh, fundamentally changed the course of human history. Something which we take for granted in the age of the internet, something we take for granted as the 262 of us today spread across different countries in the world are speaking via Zoom, a technology which is less than a decade old. By the 1850s, telegraph cables had crisscrossed the Atlantic to the point where the American president could send a message to Queen Victoria. And with the age of the steamship and all sorts of other technologies moving forward with the aircraft, we saw the spread of unprecedented uh, prosperity, uh, uh, the uh, uh, improvements in nutrition, in uh, the uh, uh, lifespan uh, of uh, people, uh, the spread of democratic and human rights ideals, and a remarkable age of uh, advancement. But at the same time, if we look at the 19th and 20th centuries, we realize that they were the most violent centuries in human history. In a sense, when we look at the Napoleonic Wars and we move forward to the First and Second World Wars, uh, we realize that the violence uh, that I described at the outset of this presentation uh, of the Mongol invasions of the Persian Empire and what have you, pale in comparison with the horrors of modern warfare, genocide, the Holocaust, the total war, uh, which uh, categorized the, uh, 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 the, the uh, Second World War, which gave birth to the United Nations and to the uh, sort of global system uh, which we have uh, inherited. We see that this was an era of unprecedented violence. And we also see that at the same time that religion, religion understood as this uh, dark superstitious uh, fanaticism, the burning of books, uh, sort of a, a hostile uh, attitude towards science, that the idea of disenchantment with religion, in a sense, threw the baby out with the bathwater, that in the name of scientific progress and intellectualization, um, Western civilization emptied itself of a mystical and spiritual understanding of knowledge and uh, the the idea of progress uh, was captured through science technology and intellectualization now if we look at the ideologies which emerged in the 19th and 20th century they include the ideology of nationalism the ideology of racism colonialism uh, communism 
And in a sense, all of these ideologies have the characteristics of a substitute religion. They also had their fanaticism, their irrationality, their idol worshipping, and instead of uh, making human sacrifices in the altar of a temple, as peoples in the dark past would, millions and millions were sacrificed on the altar of uh, catastrophic ideological wars, uh, whether it was the Stalinist purges or the horrors of colonialism and what have you. So in a sense, we became scientific and technological giants, but remained moral and spiritual dwarfs. And that was a catastrophic combination because without a deeper spiritual and moral enlightenment, advanced technology only allowed humankind to perfect the technologies of mass destruction. So getting back to the contemporary era, I would like to focus on 1990, 30 years ago, uh, when I graduated from university. And, and right now, actually, I'm sitting in a hotel room in Munich in Germany. And I'm reminded that 1989, 1990 was a momentous year. As a university student, I witnessed the destruction of the Berlin Wall, the reunification of Germany. In a sense, the Second World War ended for Germany only in 1990 with the reunification of East and West Germany. And then the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 and the end of the Cold War. So this was a remarkable uh, period in history because it provided a unique historic opportunity for the unification of humankind because the main ideological division which characterized the world since the end of the second world war until 1990 had come to an end and of course all of the previous ideologies had collapsed the ideology of colonialism the ideology of communism the ideology of fascism all of these ideologies, which each promised a utopia, and we have to remember that the greatest evils in history have always been committed in the name of something good and great. So all of a sudden, the last utopia, the last ideology that remains is consumer capitalism. So there's an aspect of Western civilization which has been the cause of great human progress, the spread of technology, scientific learning, the spread of ideals of democracy and human rights, but a civilization which has emptied itself of all moral and spiritual content, which becomes a purely materialistic civilization, um, has certain consequences, which I think we need to ponder during this uh, pandemic. So in 1990, when the Cold War ended with the defeat of communism. The idea was that capitalism, free market economies have triumphs. The American philosopher Francis Fukuyama famously wrote a book called The End of History. So for him, we had witnessed the end of history because Western civilization had triumphed, free market capitalism had triumphed, and now this uh, conception of um, progress, the pursuit of happiness, 
the culture of consumerism, which basically defines happiness and progress as the consumption of material good, the greed is good ideology of neoliberalism, which began in particular in the 1980s, the idea that the more that we consume, the more that we produce, the happier and more prosperous we will be. That idea was left unchallenged throughout the 1990s as the, uh, so this, uh, this culture of free market capitalism, of consumerism spread and encompassed the world. And it was only in the 1980s that China, in the time of Deng Xiaoping, had begun to open itself to capitalism. And then, of course, with the collapse of communism, uh, 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 the Russian Federation, the Eastern Bloc. And this global economy truly became global. Now, I mention this because today, today, you do not see that sense of triumphalism anymore. Today, people are speaking about the threatened collapse of Western civilization. People are speaking about the crisis of capitalism and consumerism, which is expressed in manifold ways. One way is uh, because of uh, egregious social injustice. Um, we have unprecedented concentrations of wealth in the world today, uh, which even the pharaohs of Egypt and the emperors of China and the emperors of Europe in the 19th century would have scarcely imagined. Today, the richest four people in the world have as much wealth as the bottom 50% of humanity. So four people have as much wealth as four billion people in the world. In addition to social injustice, which is palpably linked with the rise of hateful populism, the politics of division and uh, hatred, the corruption of uh, uh, not just political leadership, but all facets of society in a culture of materialism, which celebrates greed and narcissism, an economic system, the basic assumption of which is that human beings are incorrigibly greedy and selfish, and uh, uh, sort of which imagines that by simply accommodating that selfishness and greed, we will somehow manage to achieve the best good for all humankind. So leaving aside social injustice, leaving aside the uh, psychic pandemic, as I like to call it, of unhappiness, of stress, anxiety, and depression, which is remarkable amidst the unprecedented prosperity that we have, the alarming spread of um, mental health uh, issues uh, bordering on a crisis uh, in the heart of uh, Western uh, civilization, even if we leave all of that aside, the game changer is catastrophic climate change. Catastrophic climate change is an inescapable reality. It doesn't matter whether we believe in it or don't believe in it, just like the pandemic, because the forces of nature are at play. And they remind us that despite our self-importance and greed and selfishness and arrogance, that we are but an insignificant speck in an infinite universe, that human life is fragile, that we could vanish and the earth will go on with or without us.
So I think that returning to the uh, pandemic, returning to the theme of the fragility of human life, the theme of solidarity, social cooperation, understanding that we are all in this together, understanding that in a contest between humankind and nature, nature will always win. We have, in a sense, become the only species that is capable of self-destruction. Arnold Toynbee famously wrote that civilizations are not murdered, they commit suicide. And through our greed, through our materialism, we are sleepwalking over the edge of a cliff. So in a sense, the pandemic, the threat of catastrophic climate change, all of these are a wake-up call for humankind to reimagine, reimagine uh, the whole conception of civilization, to begin to appreciate uh, our inextricable interdependence, the one world virus, which is the title of this talk, and the fact that, well, one of the things that should go viral is the idea that we are all in this together. There is one planet on which uh, one human race has to survive. And for the first time in history, we've reached a point where unlike the time of Saadi, where globalization was some distant romantic dream, today globalization is an inescapable reality. It's no longer romantic. It is an inescapable reality which requires us to make hard and painful choices. So in a sense, the pandemic, I think, as uh, terrifying as it may be, and who knows what lays around the corner, is a unique opportunity for us through, if you like, experiential learning to adopt a humbler, deeper, uh, spiritual, empathic appreciation for human life and to uh, forge a different path forwards. And I'm going to end with just um, a couple of uh, reflections, um, which um, I hope then uh, can lead to a, a discussion, and I'm eager to learn from uh, all of you uh, as well. So um, I, uh, of, of course, have been brought up as a um, Baha'i, and, and the, uh, uh, the worldview of the Baha'i faith has been an important part of my understanding of history, of human nature. And among other things, the Baha'i faith in the tradition of all the great religions uh, of the world tells us that our essence is spiritual and not material. That just as we have a material self which gravitates towards greed and selfishness, we also have a great spiritual and moral uh, potential. And ultimately, it's not science and technology that creates justice and progress in the world. It is our capacity for compassion and empathy and locking, unlocking those spiritual qualities today uh, has become a matter of survival because if we don't change our ways, we are going to 
um, bring about our own uh, self-destruction. In addition to that, um, I spoke about uh, Telegraph, the first Telegraph on May 22nd, 23rd, 1844. Well, remarkably, on that very same day, we witnessed the beginnings of the uh, Babi faith, which became, which was the predecessor to the, to the Baha'i faith. And one of the central teachings of the Baha'i faith um, is captured by the statements, uh, the teaching of its prophet founder, the whole law, that the earth is but one country and mankind its citizens. A remarkable vision in the 19th century at the height of nationalism and all the divisive, destructive ideologies that I've just described. Bahá'u'lláh explained that the destiny of humankind at this stage of its historical evolution is unification in one world civilization. But unlike the days of Saadi, when the idea of interdependence in a world civilization was some, as I said, romantic dream, some far-fetched fantasy, Baha'u'llah said that this was the destiny of humankind, that humankind would inevitably grow into one inextricably interdependent uh, world civilization. Uh, organically unified in the same way as a body in which one infection or one virus will spread from one person to another, from one part of our body to another. In the same way, if we ignore the suffering of others in this world, if we are indifferent towards injustice, then those uh, injustices, those evils will come back to haunt us. And what Baha'u'llah said in the leaders, in the letters that he wrote to the leaders of the world, in particular in 1868, uh, during his 40-year exile throughout the Ottoman Empire, he warned the leaders of the world that they had a choice either to achieve the unification of all peoples in one world civilization through embracing this uh, vision uh, of one world with volition, consciously and deliberately, or to get there after unimaginable suffering forces humankind to embrace its oneness. So to wrap up our discussion, I think we live in an extraordinary period of human history. And the pandemic, together with climate change and migration and so many other uh, uh, realities which are inescapable is leading us irresistibly to what I call the one world virus. <laughs> it's a good virus. It's a virus which uh, spreads in our consciousness, in our understanding of our place in the universe, in our understanding of our relation to our fellow human beings, and I want to simply um, end with the idea that we are witnessing in the world today what the guardian of the Baha'i faith, Shori Effendi, called the twin processes. One process is the destruction and disintegration of an old world order, which is divisive, materialistic, 
which fails to embrace the oneness and wholeness of humankind and our spiritual nature. And just as we witness that disintegration, we are also witnessing another process, which is the process of construction and integration, the rise of a new, radically different consciousness, which one can see in particular in the younger generation, in their rejection of so many of the harmful and destructive and divisive dogmas of uh, previous generations. So we should not be uh, uh, complacent about what we're witnessing in the world, certainly, but we should also be, I would say, infinitely optimistic about the new world which lays ahead of us. Because if we think that the Industrial Revolution fundamentally changed the course of human history, I think we have seen nothing yet in terms of the internet revolution and the uh, infinite potentials for progress, justice, advancement that lay ahead only if we can uh, uh, move forward in solidarity based on a spiritual consciousness. And uh, I think that in this um, great uh, chapter in history, uh, each and every one of us uh, has a, a role to play. And I will uh, just uh, end by saying that if there's one thing I've learned as a war crimes prosecutor, having worked with genocide survivors uh, across the world in Rwanda and Yugoslavia and Guatemala and Cambodia and what have you, if there's one thing I've learned, it is the astonishing resilience of the human spirit. And ironically, we do not understand our own power and resilience in a state of ease and comfort and greed and materialism, which is the irony of how in the midst of prosperity, we're sinking more and more into misery because the source of our happiness is ultimately self-sacrifice. The source of our happiness is empathy and struggle. And uh, in that respect, I think that by doing good in the world, we're doing uh, uh, nobody a favor but our own self. So I also hope that as a result of this discussion, we can uh, move forward and um, uh, enthusiastically embrace both the responsibility and unique opportunity which we have to begin to build a, a different world. So I'm um, at just under 40 minutes and I will stop there and once again uh, thank uh, uh, our friends for uh, having uh, invited me and to thank all of you uh, for listening to me patiently. Thank you. All right, well, thank you, Professor Akhavan, for that very engaging talk. <laughs>